This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Hi, and welcome to Radiotherapy. This week, we will be taking you on three very different tours of the mind. First up, James Ingram will be talking with us about mindfulness. No doubt, informed audience that you are, you know all about this very zen way of calming your mind. Well, I thought I knew all about it until I spoke to James. You see, he will be taking us by the hand, drawing a slow breath and leading us down the path of mindfulness, as well as telling us about his research into the use of mindfulness with teenagers. Dr. Campbell Paul is a senior child and adolescent psychiatrist at the Royal Children's Hospital, and I've known him for a long time. In fact, he was my supervisor for a year, but it's probably something he's blotted out of his memory as well he should. Um, He enjoys the lofty reputation of an esteemed uh, clinician amongst colleagues and staff because he's just so damn good and I am making him cringe, no doubt. Uh, This morning, we twisted his arm to come into the studio and talk with us about what is new in infant mental health. Do you reckon what you put on your plate can be a factor in how you're feeling? In other words, can food affect mood? For sure, I hear you cry. Well, now we're going to give you the evidence that it does, because Sarah Dash from the School of Medicine at Deakin University will be detailing these scientific studies that prove the association between food and mood. Sarah, a PhD student, will also be telling us about the intriguingly named SMILES study examining food and major depressive symptoms. Now, if that ain't enough for one morning, we also have the pleasure of uh, Dr. Nick, and we've got to send our commiserations to Nurse EpiPen, who wanted to come to the studio, but is home sick in bed. We're thinking about you, EpiPen. So, put the kettle on, pop the sourdough into the toaster, and start smashing the avocados, so you can kick back and spend the next hour listening to radiotherapy. Good morning, Dr. Nick. Good morning. I, I imagine a whole load of people out there hear you say infant mental health and thinking, what on earth are you talking about? Ah, you see, creating the drama, you yes, see. I can't wait to hear that Campbell, fantastic. He's a great speaker. Now, lots been going on in the news in the last week. Uh, we were just talking in the green room, and I think it really represents our different takes on the world. <laughs> You're going to tell us about some of the latest changes to legislation in Medicare, and I might tell you about chocolate. Well, just a, just a couple of small stories that were in the paper today, just about our entire health system funding and and tiny segment also about um, end of life and dying with dignity mm. legislation. And what did you see in the newspaper? Something to do with chocolate. But, yeah, well, yeah. <laughs> uh, but I was very interested. When the budget came out there was all this news uh, Greg Hunt telling us that finally the rebate freeze for general practice was going to be lifted. Who's Greg Hunt? So Greg Hunt is the Federal Health Minister. In right. fact I was at a training weekend uh, down at San Remo and Greg Hunt popped in for an hour and told us pre-budget that we're all going to this 110 GPs mm-hmm. all learning how to be better supervisors and Greg popped down and uh, told us how we were all going to be terribly happy with the budget. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge, couldn't tell us exactly what. And we thought, great, the rebate freeze is finally going, finally going to be lifted. And that's what was announced on budget night. And people out there might be thinking, well, that's good. Maybe I won't have to pay quite so much to go and see my GP in mm-hmm. future. Now, the background to this, if people don't know, is that the rebates that Medicare pays for seeing a GP have been frozen uh, for four years 
and uh, $37.05 is what the government will pay back, or if the doctor bulk bills, that's what the doctor receives, Mm -hmm. for a standard consultation. That hasn't changed since 2013, Mm -hmm. which makes it a little bit tough to keep bulk billing people, particularly if you spend any time with them. Mm So a rebate freeze lift would be very nice, and we thought, goody, that's going to change things a little bit. But then it turns out that's not going to change till 2018, and today we discovered, hidden in the fine print, is there a whole stack of bits of the Medicare rebate schedule which are not going to be lifted. So it only applies to certain elements of the schedule. So it's a little bit backhanded by the government to say, mm-hmm. whoopee, look, we're going to fund Medicare properly and look after the GPs and encourage bulk billing by lifting the rebate freeze and then not do it for at least 12 months and then only do it partially. Mm. I felt that was a little bit sly. See, it was way too complicated for me. <laughs> I, just, I skipped over that article. <laughs> Tell us about the euthanasia legislation. What's happening there? Oh, this is, this is again, a huge, huge developing piece of news. So we know that the Victorian government is going to vote on uh, dying with dignity legislation mm-hmm. at the end of this year. And mm-hmm. there's a, a groups put together to put the draft legislation to Parliament. And they've produced an interim draft report about what that legislation will involve. The item in the news today was talking about uh, what a pity that in the currently proposed legislation, dementia will be specifically excluded as a reason why people can choose end of life. So let me understand this. So it means if I have dementia now, I can't, I'm I'm exempted from that euthanasia law. The cur- well, the law doesn't exist what? yet, so the, the proposed legislation, uh, we think that, that what will be proposed will exclude conditions like dementia because what will be required is that people are, competent. A, within 12 months of mm. being likely to die, and B, are mentally competent to make that decision. What about an advanced directive? Can I not say, if I develop condition A, B, C or D, then I would like this to happen? And that's such a good point, and <clears> that was the point in the paper today, that in mm. some countries where there is dying di- with dignity legislation, advanced directives are accepted. Mm-hmm. One of the concerns there is, you might say, when you're 65, mm. oh, if I get dementia, mm. polish me off, mm. I don't want to carry on. Mm. Ten years later, when it finally happens, you might have changed your mind. So Mm. we're a bit concerned about where advanced directives leave us Mm. uh, and whether it's really the right way to deal with people's wishes Mm. in the future. Because this is such difficult legislation to get through, Uh, South Australia voted it down by one vote last year. So Mm. it nearly got through in a different state Mm. last year. We are really very keen to get some meaningful legislation in place. It would be the first Australian state ever to have dying with dignity legislation if it goes through in Victoria. And when is that slated to go to Parliament? At the end of this year. Right. So in order to make it possible to succeed, it really needs to be watertight and we need to get rid of areas which are a little bit fuzzy around the edges because that enables uh, people who are anti this kind of legislation to really twist it and Mm -hmm. turn people against it. Now, again, uh, as we were saying at the start of the show, as indicative of our different personalities, you go for the highbrow, I go for the chocolate. Uh, There was a study performed in Denmark, and you've got to love the Danes for a whole number of reasons. Beautiful country, beautiful people. Queen, Mary, you know. Uh, But they have a healthcare system in which everybody is registered with uh, a particular, uh, like on a roll, and when they do epidemiological, that is public health research, researchers, you know, after obviously scrutiny with uh, ethics boards, can access that role. So I know if, Nick, you um, have a a broken leg, I can kind of find that out from the role as a researcher and then try and link that to something else. Maybe it was smoking, maybe it was drinking or something else. I mean, on on a mass population level. 
So it's a very uh, uh, useful way of looking at, at public health. So a bunch of researchers in the mid-90s uh, did this thing called the, I think it was the Danish Health and Cancer Study. And uh, 55,000 people uh, enrolled themselves in the study, said, yes, I want to be part of this study. They filled out a questionnaire which basically detailed everything that uh, they'd eaten uh, over the last I don't know, couple of months or whatever, like or, you know, what they basically have. And the researchers then took that, followed these people for, I think, four years and looked at the relationship between what people ate and one specific outcome that they were interested in was heart arrhythmias. Mm-hmm. And the, the most uh, common heart arrhythmia is one called atrial fibrillation. That is when the uh, heart doesn't uh, beat nice and rhythmically, it actually flutters a little bit like a butterfly. Isn't that a lovely uh, psychiatrist giving an accurate explanation <laughs> of a cardiac <laughs> well, Very well done. Well, you know, one of my closest friends is a cardiologist. So they were, does chocolate affect a heart arrhythmia and... They, they had some good pathological and biochemical reasons to suspect so because there are these things called flavanols in chocolates which actually stop inflammation and inflammation is considered to be potentially one of the causes of atrial fibrillations. Lo and behold, they found that if you ate one, was it? I think it was uh, at least one serve of chocolate a week, which is 30 grams of dark chocolate. It's got to oh, be dark chocolate because it's Danish it. chocolate. Um, your incident, the incidence of atrial fibrillation was decreased up to 20%. And Which is startling. And people out there might be thinking, well, so what, 20%? But atrial fibrillation is the most common arrhythmia. It affects at least 10% of people over the age of 65. So it's something which a lot of people are going to have to face. And it sounds to me as though, if you're correct, Dr. Mal, the little <laughs> bit of chocolate every day, that's, <laughs> see, gonna, that's going to drop that rate right down to 8%. See, I, I could just see friends of mine saying, well, exactly, if I have one piece, it's down by 20. Maybe if I have 10 pieces, I just absolutely won't get it all. It'd be 0%. It doesn't quite work that way. But it's nice that we can start drawing associations between food and what it does to us at a very kind of specific level. And later on in the show, we're going to be having Sarah Dash come in talking to us about food and mood. But I just thought, you know, I love anything which which encourages me to have chocolate and red wine. Well, atrial atrial (laughs) fibrillation is one of those classic conditions where uh, a lot of people individually will tell us that certain foods or drinks affect their atrial fibrillation. So alcohol is one of those things where it's fairly controversial about its role in AF. Uh, But a patient told me literally just the other day that she had been part of a study here in Melbourne looking at the uh, role of alcohol and atrial fibrillation. And for her, it's one of the triggers. So she has been dry for the last six months and AF-free. What do we used to call it medical school? Is it a holiday heart when uh, you have a binge of alcohol and uh, that clicks off AF? We we like that sort of thing, do we? Holiday hearts and kissing diseases. Because it alliterates well. And with us in the studio, we have uh, Dr. Nick and our special guest, Dr. Campbell Paul. Welcome, Campbell. Thanks, Dr. Mel. Now, just give our audience an idea of what you do uh, in a typical week uh, at the Children's Hospital. Oh, okay. Um, Well, it's a varied week I have. um, often on the beginning of the week, Mondays, I'm doing uh, a training with uh, my colleague from the Women's Hospital, Susan Nicholson. We're doing a training in the newborn behavioural observation, which is a way of introducing newborn babies to their parents hmm. over the first uh, three months of life. Often parents don't uh, realise how capable and inquiring and alert and engaging their baby is and uh, this is a way of sharing with them and uh, what their baby can do um, and we use that uh, those principles in the rest of the week um, 
where I'm mainly working in the hospital at the children's with uh, sick babies and their families um, in neonatal intensive care or in the general paediatric or surgical wards, Mm -hmm. infants who had surgery or trauma of one kind or another and helping the parents and the babies connect and uh, keep things going despite the presence of some major illness or injury. Mm. So clearly your your area of interest is infant mental health. That's right, yeah. Tell us, you know, what's new in this area because I I mean... how, how do we discover new things in infant mental health? Because it's very hard to get into a baby's sure. brain, obviously. So, I mean, what's come up? Well, there's plenty of uh, ways of accessing what a baby might be thinking and feeling. But the first step is to make uh, an assumption that they are thinking and feeling, and often people don't do that. Mm. So that's step one. Um, and uh, things like the NBO are a really great way of helping parents see what their baby's wishes, desires, intentions are. Babies are really good at uh, reading our intentions. They can uh, guess what we're thinking, what we're anticipating. Fennigan? Yeah. How do, I mean, how do you know? Uh, tell, well, tell me how you know. There's a very clever colleague, uh, MC Naj, uh, who's in Dundee in Scotland, and she's been doing research with um, uh, babies and newborns for, for quite a while. Um, one of the things she's uh, developed is a way of looking at babies' capacity for imitation. So there's a, a, a long uh, line of research looking at babies' imitative capacity. And the early um, studies were looking at babies poking their tongue out in response <laughs> to someone poking their tongue out towards them. And uh, you can show that occurs from the labour ward onwards if you've got the baby in a nice, quiet, engaged, uh, alert state um, and you poke your tongue out. If the baby's watching you and, and interested, um, they'll poke their tongue out back. Fair dinkum. Fair dinkum. <laughs> Didn't know that. And, and Campbell, yeah. with it slightly provocative, but yes. who cares whether a baby pokes its tongue out in response to or not? Yeah, well, parents care. Um, <laughs> um, or the, and, and sometimes they don't, and that's a problem um, because it means they're, they're not reading their baby uh, who's making um, really strong uh, connections and communications. And that's part of the whole business of attachment and survival. You know, the baby's born with these uh, an amazing array, array of skills and capacities, most of which uh, are designed to um, draw in the, um, the other, the carer. So the way the baby looks at you, I mean, people say, oh, your babies can't see till they're six weeks or something when they mm-hmm. smile. Well, that's nonsense. Really? Yeah. See, that's, I mean, that's, I mean, a lot of people would not know that. No. Because that, that is the general kind of assumptions that babies can't focus or can't see until, no. as you say, six weeks. No, well, their visual acuity is not as sharp as ours or as mine used to be. Um, <laughs> uh, it's maybe a little bit look, like looking through a slightly frosted glass, mm-hmm. but despite that, they can differentiate the face of their own mother from another mother. Mm-hmm. They can differentiate um, racial groups um, mm-hmm. uh, from around three months. Mm-hmm. Um, and we think... They can tell them the smell of their mother's milk, the sound of their mother's voice. They can remember their father's voice from in utero, and you can demonstrate that in the uh, in the first days of life if you get the baby in the right. Hang on, stage. I've, I've got a command B. You know, underline that so babies can recognise their father's voice yeah. from uh, from I suspect the time that they were in utero. Yeah, the father talking to them. Um, if if they've done that, um, how, and how do you know that? How do you? What studies have proven that or shown that? Um, well, there's quite a few. There's a group um, uh, 
in uh, Sydney um, at UWS. Um, uh, Stephen Malik was one of the key researchers there who's done a lot of work looking at babies' capacity to hear um, and respond to voice. And they're actually born with a, uh, an awareness of musicality, as they call it, and as well. Uh, Colin Trevathan, who's a big researcher in this area from Edinburgh, um, uh, with his um, colleagues has done a lot of research in this area and they have the hypothesis that, uh, and here I'll go out of my strong suit um, and talk about... Um, uh, rhythm and they they, they talk about uh, adagio, um, which uh, you know. Uh, well, I won't I won't sing for you just now. Um, I've heard any chance you're given to sing or do so, even on radio. <laughs> yeah, but I don't think I can sing at adagio. Uh, but uh, he says this this rhythm, which is normal human speech, um, follows um, the impact of um, nine months or so of. Um, uh, exposure to um, perpendicular bipedal perambulation, i.e. your mother walking. Um, uh, as they walk along, there's a, as the mother walks along, the, the baby becomes um, uh, accustomed, if you, if you like, to that rhythm. And so when um, a parent uh, starts doing a bit of mother ease, oh, how are you going there, little baby? Oh, what's happening now? Whoa, what's that mean? There's this same musicality that is consistent with what might have been the the way the mother walks. So, so Campbell, for parents out there who may be pregnant, young babies, what what does this mean that they should message they should take? What does it mean that they should consider or do differently, mm. perhaps, knowing the kind of information that you're talking about? Mm. Well, I guess the main thing is have um, trust and faith in your baby and be curious. Um, you know, when your baby looks at you, they're looking at you um, usually with a purpose. Having said that, um, we all need our zone-out time, and mine's usually um, about uh, 8.30 after dinner in front of the TV and um, asleep or just in another zone. But babies need that zone-out time um, as we're going along. So th the fact that uh, a baby mightn't respond to you straight away doesn't mean there's a problem. It just means they're... Um, uh, reorganising themselves, collecting their thoughts, they're um, getting uh, settled, if you like. Mm -hmm. But uh, encouraging parents, when the baby looks at them, to look back and smile, um, for example, simple as that, um, or um, play with the baby. I was just noticing uh, slightly ajar, but quite relevant, um, uh, Paul Ramchandani is a child psychiatrist in the UK who's just been um, appointed Professor of Play at the uh, <laughs> University of Cambridge. <laughs> what a great title. I'm Professor of Play. And you're the Professor of Chocolate. Oh, I mean, this is... how good would that be? So he's, he's, uh, he's at the Centre for Research in Play in Education, Development and Learning. He's a child psychiatrist and the chair is sponsored by Lego, of course. So <laughs> I don't the know Lego whether that chair of he play. has to sit on a Lego chair. But it, it's a great place, um, Cambridge, for, mm. for that. I think um, for, for me uh, there's a long history of research and interest in from, from my knowledge, interest in infants and infant-parent relationships in and, Cambridge. And, and one of the things I think from my perspective in general practice is I get very worried that people spend a lot of time buying and reading yeah. parenting books and I'm often saying to people, toss all that lot away because you need to, number one, trust your sense yes, of what absolutely. your baby's telling you. Um, and I think if I'm hearing you correctly, one of the messages is that babies are really well programmed to help us be good mm -hmm. parents. 
and we've got to stop relying on other people to tell us what to do and yeah. listen to our babies. Is yeah, that right? Absolutely, yes. Um, one of the key people in infant mental health from uh, the very early days is Donald Winnicott, who is a paediatrician psychoanalyst uh, and uh, worked through the two wars and beyond. But uh, after the Second World War, he did a whole series of broadcasts for the UK government to parents, and his message was, um, you know, there's lots of experts out there. You're the expert on your baby, mm-hmm. and... and uh, feel free to play with them, talk with them, get to know them, and they'll let you know. Um, but it, I, I find that always, to, to me, it's the baby's the expert. Yes. I think parents get a bit scared sometimes being told you because they don't feel expert, no. they feel completely at sea. No. But the, the reality is it's the baby who's programmed yeah. Yeah. to do it. We just have to follow. There's an, another experiment where they have babies just on a mat on the floor and there's a little transducer under the mat so that if there's a movement from the baby, it's recorded and they're videoing as well. And they just ask uh, mothers to approach the baby and as soon as the mother um, comes near, you can um, see in the video and from the way the baby's um, muscles are changing, how the baby prepares to get picked up. They sort of move their arms and their body. They're getting ready to be picked up. Um, that's before the mother's said anything or done anything. Mm. So the babies, uh, this is at two months, I think, they're doing these experiments, and I'm sure it happens before. The baby's reading the motor behaviour, the facial expression, the voice of the parent um, to prepare for what's going to happen next. Do you know, if you would have said this, well, let's just say, tw- 30 years ago, yeah. mo- I think a lot of mums would say, well, that's kind of, you know, that's obvious. But yes. science would say, no, that doesn't happen. Because you know, yeah. babies can't see yeah. and babies yeah. can't tell what's happening. And yeah. don't you get a sense that sometimes, Campbell, science catches up to what people often already know or, or instinctively feel with their babies? I think that's true. But um, they've had parents have had science telling them a whole lot of things. Yeah. Um, and... Uh, uh, you know, I was raised on a manual from the Victorian Health Department, which actually wasn't too bad in yeah. the fifties. Um, but uh, there's been a very um, strong push to scientific or scientistic approaches to parenting. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, you know, strict routine. Um, uh, don't let them get you down. Make sure you're the boss. Um, just tell your baby what to do. They they don't know. Mm. Um, that's been a very strong message to parents through the 70s, 80s, 90s, I think. Um, and it's still out there that, uh, you know, your job is to to break their spirit um, as a parent, not to find out who they are. Mm. Um, so I, I think it has been really hard for parents getting um, very uh, different messages. And, and the, the predominant message... Um, has been, you know, the professionals know best. Um, and paradoxically, I think that's wrong. <laughs> now, before you're talking about NBO, is that yeah. newborn baby observation? Behavioural observation, just, yeah. Just take us through what that actually is and what yeah. you're doing. Well, it it, uh, it started with uh, uh, T. Barry Brazelton, who's a, a Boston... Um, uh, icon and paediatrician um, and Barry Brasselton was really interested in what babies could do and trying to systematise and understand that so he developed a newborn behavioural um, uh, assessment scheme um, so a, a way of recording reflexes, um, capacity to see, response to sound and uh, vision and touch and so forth and that's been sort of modified into a, a smaller 
uh, intervention with about 18 with 18 items and we're looking at what the how the baby responds when you look at them when you smile uh, when you just uh, touch a little rattle um, uh, beside their ear to see how the, uh, even a newborn baby hours old can follow a red ball across the field of vision so there's a few very simple things mm. that highlight the baby's capacities that are there from from birth mm. um, and uh, you're sharing that with parents mm, mm. Um, we're also doing that with babies who are sick mm. so uh, you might have a dad whose baby's um, in neonatal intensive care needing surgery, uh, looks like they might die, they've survived, uh, but he's really terrified and doesn't know how to connect with the baby. Um, you show that the baby can look at him, um, uh, the baby's able to hold his finger and the father's on a different trajectory. Mm. My baby knows who I am, I can do something, I can come and speak to him, I can just touch him. Um, and even though he's on a ventilator, there's a response. Mm. Um, so you've got a, a whole new relationship mm. trajectory building right from the beginning, which otherwise um, leads the father to feel more and more frightened and mm. alienated and useless and angry and ashamed and ashamed of being ashamed, mm. angry with his baby for making him feel ashamed of being ashamed. I, I think that's such an important point, isn't it, that it's, it is hard sometimes for new dads to connect and particularly yeah. when there's a, a medical problem and hospital mm. involved. And babies do have this extraordinary capacity to yeah. make you connect. Yeah. But it's not something I think we blokes are intuitively very good at finding. Mm. Um, babies will do it to us. But mm. I think you're right. I think we've got to, in, particularly in this sort of context where there's hospital and, and medical intervention involved, we've got to push the dads in there and make them do it and then the babies will do the work. Yeah, exactly. Campbell, are there, I'm just conscious of the time, we could sure. talk for hours, but are there any good resources that people could, that you could direct people to? I mean, in my mind, I mean, just for the for general interest, there's a mm. book by David Brooks called The Social Animal mm. where he talks about some of the experiments that you spoke about and they blew my mind. I didn't, mm. I didn't actually know about them mm. um, and about how sentient a baby is. Anything that our listeners might sort of want to have a look at? Hmm. That's a good question. Um, <laughs> Sorry, I put you on the spot. There actually yeah. is a fathering book written by yes, another person absolutely. in the studio here. And, and, <laughs> and that's well-resourced <laughs> and referenced uh, by Nick. Yes, I did write a book called What Happens Now, yeah. the essential book for first-time fathers, and I wish it was as erudite as you are about these topics, Campbell, <laughs> but I did, it's really about trying to get dads involved, which yeah. I think is hugely important. Yeah. Yeah. There's, we've got a website, the Australian Association for Infant Mental Health, and uh, the 12th to the 15th of June is International Infant Mental Health Day, or week. Um, so there's a few things coming up. Our website, AAIMH, if you just Google that. Let's say that again, Sally. Australian Association for Infant Mental Health. AAIMH. Okay. Yeah. Good resource. Um, and uh, there's actually an American um, website called Zero to Three, yeah. which has got a huge amount of information that's really aimed at uh, parents and very accessible and, uh, and digestible too. Oh, so, so it's not about the acceleration of electric cars? <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Campbell okay. Thorpe, thank you uh, so much for um, coming in and sharing uh, your wisdom with us today, and hopefully we can get you back in on the show. It's been an absolute pleasure. Terrific. Thanks a lot. See you. We... Just had Dr. Campbell Paul in the studio, and he does have this amazing calming presence. This is something I remember very acutely from my time with him. Just being in a room with him made me feel 
chilled. He's got that wonderful, he? mellow voice, hasn't he? Doesn't he? Doesn't he? Yes. Now, taking his chair is Sarah Dash, soon to be Dr. Sarah Dash. Soon to be. She'll be completing her PhD. And you must have one of the best areas of research ever, food and mood. How did you, how did you get into that? Oh, it goes way back, probably. I was really interested in sport when I was younger yeah. and continuing now, um, but I was also really competitive. <laughs> so I started thinking about food as a way to win. <laughs> Um, and so I was always interested in eating really well because it increased my athletic performance. And it sort of just went from there. I started to notice I felt good, uh, mm-hmm. sort of emotionally and more mentally sharp, perhaps, when I was eating well. And then I studied, uh, I did dietetics for the first couple of years of my oh, undergrad yeah. and finished in psychology. And then I just sort of had this marriage of interests of yeah. uh both, I guess, from a personal from personal experience, but professionally as well. So I'm pretty sharp, and I recognise that your accent isn't Australian. Did you come across specifically to study food and mood at Deakin? Uh, well, sort of. It was sort of like a happy accident. Um, I did a year of exchange at Melbourne Uni when I was yeah. in my undergrad, and and really loved Melbourne uh, largely because it was much warmer than Canada. Um, and then I graduated from my undergrad, and there was this opportunity at Deakin to work on. Uh, a project looking at diet and mental health and I applied and sort of moved across the world two weeks later. Fantastic. Yeah. So tell us the kind of things that you work in and you know what we should know about food and mood. Sure. Um, well, I think that people intuitively understand that what they eat is important to how they feel. Yeah. Um, I think it goes back to our grandmothers telling us, you know, you are what you eat and mm-hmm. um, eat your vegetables and all that type of thing. So I think people understand that. Um, and that type of research has been going on for a long time in, t- in the physical health mm-hmm. area. Mm-hmm. So I think it's pretty well accepted and understood, you know, if you need to lower your blood pressure or... or um, you know, you want to lower some sort of diabetes risk, you need Mm -hmm. to adjust what you're eating. Mm -hmm. But it's been a lot slower to evolve in the space of mental health. Um, And I'm not exactly sure why that is. (laughs) But it's really only been in the last decade that we've really begun to understand that what we eat is really important and protective of our brain and Mm -hmm. our mental health as well. So that's sort of where we're at today. Um, But I can talk about the project that I moved yeah, to well, Australia for. Yeah, if you'd well, like. I'm, I'm fascinated by that. I'm also interested in the smiles study, and also kind of one of the big ticket items. You know, if you could you know, tell us, you know, what are the, the three or four big things that are kind of brewing in the literature about food and mental health? Sure. Well, uh, if I reference the smiles trial briefly, this was mm-hmm. the trial looking at um, diet to treat depression. Mm-hmm. It's the first study in the world to show that improving diet is effective in, in reducing mm-hmm. symptoms of depression. Um, so it's important to replicate that study. Yep. I mean, you, you obviously, you can't do it once. You, you need, we need more randomized controlled trials to really develop that quality of evidence. Uh, but something that's really interesting at the moment is we're trying to understand why this relationship happens. Mm-hmm. So we're trying to understand the biological mechanisms. And if you follow health, either in the academic world or just the public, public eye, uh, the gut microbiome has been really... Um, a big player. We're starting to really understand that the gut or the bacteria that live in our gut are really important to our physical health, but we're beginning to understand how it's really important to our mental health as well. So that's something that is really advancing quite quickly in nutrition and mental health. Because a mate of mine was telling me how he altered, he went to a a doctor who specialises in gut microbiomes and uh, he completely changed his gut microbiome by changing his diet, you know, 
cut out sugar, did this, did that. And a month later, he, he was at an airport somewhere and he just went hammer and tongs and had three donuts and he said he got the worst gut ache ever. And yeah. <laughs> had to go back on the diet again for... Now, there, there, are, there are tens of thousands of people out there listening who are hanging on your every word because, <laughs> because anxiety, our biggest mental health issue out in the community, closely followed by depression between those two, at least 10% of the listeners will be familiar with either having suffered it or maybe going to suffer it and they want to know what should they be doing differently come on give us the good oil here as they say in australia what should they be eating to help their mental health sure well i get this question a lot and i always wish that i could deliver a really sort of popular sexy message of like chocolate and blueberries Mm -hmm. or something um but i think it really just goes back to conventional dietary advice so um the recent results of the National Nutrition Survey showed us that less than 5% of Australian adults are eating the right amount, recommended amount of vegetables. So I always like to sort of start there. Um, We need to be eating lots of fresh fruits and vegetables, lots of whole grain cereals, things that are high in fibre, and a varied whole food diet. So that's good for your mood as well as for your physical health. That's right, yeah. Think that zucchini is good for my mood. Well, not zucchini in isolation, but if you're eating a diet that's really balanced, has lots of fresh foods and fiber, as well as healthy fats like fish and avocado and olive oil and nuts, um, then absolutely that's something that's beneficial for both your physical and mental health. And I think that's part of what's appealing about the message is that you don't have to tailor a diet to your brain necessarily it sort of benefits both mm-hmm. how do you tease that i might, I might ask, be asking you a complicated question but how do you tease out like you know you give a whole lot of people the recommended diet and they feel better physically so maybe feeling better physically makes them feel better mentally i mean how do you tease out which way that association goes well that's sort of the point of a randomized mm. controlled trial but just to speak to your point um I don't think we can separate yep. them. Mm. I mean your physical health and your mental health are so intertwined and a lot of the diagnostic criteria of of anxiety and depression are really physical feelings like mm. that those butterflies in your stomach or sweaty palms because you're nervous about something. Mm-hmm. So I think what's interesting is that you can't separate your body from your brain and they communicate with each other. So I think that you are sort of Uh, It's a two birds, one stone type of approach if you're improving your diet Mm -hmm. um, because it may increase how you feel physically. You may have a little bit more energy. Perhaps you're willing to cook a little bit more often Mm -hmm. and in turn, maybe your mental health improves. You know, maybe it's a bit of a cycle. Tell me about superfoods because, you know, everything's a superfood nowadays and I'm getting confused. I mean, is this dinkum or not? Well, it is a bit of a buzzword. Um, So I work in just the research area of nutritional psychiatry. And in the last couple of years, we've really moved away from individual nutrients and individual foods. And that's just because you you don't eat that way. I mean, you eat foods together in a meal. And we can't mimic the way that foods interact with each other if you're just taking a pill or just eating. You know, you can't recommend blueberries and it's not going to forgive the Big Mac you had just beforehand. (laughs) So certainly there are foods that are really rich in antioxidants and and fiber and things that are really beneficial for you mm-hmm. um, but they have to be eaten in like the broader picture mm-hmm. of an overall healthy diet so you're talking about a super meal yeah a super meal so can i ask it makes sense that healthy diet healthy brain that works i don't think anyone would have trouble with that message but the thing that's changed i think is we're talking about this gut microbiome and while this is a fairly new kind of buzzword out there and people might be familiar, this is about the bacteria that live 
pretty much in our large intestine and um, there are trillions I think of these things and we're increasingly recognising their role in health in all senses physical and mental but what on earth can bacteria wandering around your large bowel have to do with your psychological health? Oh sure well they they have a lot of jobs the bacteria I mean obviously their primary one of their primary functions is to digest the food that we're eating and diet is actually uh, the most impactful factor on changing our gut microbiome is experienced by mm. your your, your poor sugar-free mm. friend. Um, and so there's lots of ways that we hypothesize that the gut is communicating with the brain. Um, so if you have a balance of good bacteria and bad bacteria, that can uh, moderate your levels of inflammation. Uh, if you're eating really unhealthy foods or you have sort of exposure to environmental harmful things in the environment, uh, it can promote a leaky gut which is, mm-hmm. is little sort of compromises in the, in the barrier of your gut. And uh, particles that belong in your gut can escape into the bloodstream. And, and that, your body, I mean, bacteria are not supposed to be in your bloodstream. So it sort of promotes this inflammatory response. And, and what has inflammation got to do with anxiety and depression? Well, mm. there's the hypothesis that depression is an inflammatory disorder. Um, in, in, inflamed what? Well, it's it's a like low level systemic inflammation. So rather than a really targeted, you know, you you cut your knee and it's hot and red and swollen, mm-hmm. it's this low level of constant immune activity in your body. And we know that's a risk factor for a range of physical health conditions. And we're understanding that it's related to to mental health as well. Yeah, this inflammatory response hypothesis is now kind of the the, the, the new flavour of the decade with, with so many disorders, um, even uh, atrial fibrillation, as we were talking about before with chocolate. And we heard about it on the previous show here with Dr. Moto talking about inflammation um, related to ovarian benign tumours mm, and psychosis mm, mm, in mm, women and that mm, sort of thing. So, mm. uh, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating territory, this, and I think this is one of the new frontiers of science where we're going to learn. So does that mean we should just take a, a brief and a day and we'll be fine? A bit of anti-inflammatory and we won't get depressed? Well, there are some interesting studies looking at uh, things like aspirin or anti-inflammatory medication and depression risk. And there is an association there, but we're, we're just still really trying to tease out why this is happening. And no. we might just get that leaky gut if we do. That's the well, that's right. I mean, how do you separate <laughs> from all the other things that might be going on? So so just to be clear, we're not recommending that people suddenly start taking anti-inflammatories to help them. No, that's right. I would probably prefer lots of vegetables instead. There are are some (laughs) nasty interactions between anti-inflammatories and antidepressants. So if you are suffering from depression on medication, don't suddenly take a message from this that you should take anti-inflammatories. It could be quite harmful. Call me an ageing hippie, but I love that what you're talking about, Sarah, is that... let me take a step back. We, when I was at medical school, it was a mind-body duality, you know, kind of the yin and yang. But that was, I think, now the wrong way to look at it. it mind-body is kind of like ink in water. They're the same thing, just different expressions of the same thing. And when you try and tease things out too much, you lose the overall picture because you can't see the forest for the trees. It's, you know what I mean? Yeah. So I, I love that, that kind of your research is, is looking at that. And you kind of said to me, well, why separate it out? Mal, they're, they're kind of the same thing. Yeah, I love hearing that message. Fantastic stuff, Sarah. Um, chocolate, just give me the, the lowdown. Good. Uh, well, I do love a study that supports chocolate. <laughs> 
as part yeah. of an overall healthy diet, a bit of dark chocolate's not going to do you any straight. harm. Oh, good. <laughs> that gives me permission. Thank you so much for coming on, uh, Sarah. Sarah Dash, all the best uh, for your PhD. When do you become a doctor? Uh, well, I should be submitting in the next month, fingers crossed. Mazel tov, good luck. Thank you very and, much. And uh, we'll get you back on the show later on. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks. We have uh, James Ingram, who is a medical student and who prefers to be called by the name Jimmy. Yeah, Jimmy. Fine. Now, Jimmy, you are um, doing some research on mindfulness. For those of us, well, I thought I knew everything about mindfulness, but I, clearly I don't. Tell us what mindfulness is. <clears throat> um, well, it's funny because it is in this day and age, it's something that is all over the place yeah. and, and everyone's heard the term yeah. mindfulness in, yeah. in one con- context or another. And and we could go into, I guess, some of the, the misappropriations of, of mindfulness, sure. but uh, I'll refrain from, from going sure. down that pathway. Sorry. So, what, what, I mean, when, when it's used in its correct manner, what is mindfulness? Mindfulness is just paying attention and that's a, a fundamental human capacity and, and it's paying attention in a specific way which is moment to moment uh, and in a non-reactive and, and non-judgmental way and so I love hang on I love that definition I love simple clear definitions so mindfulness is just paying attention it's just paying attention that's all it is but and just harnessing that I guess innate curiosity to your internal experience to to explore the the weird and wonderful world that is the human mind and so you're paying attention to what's happening inside you yeah so paying attention to your senses yeah and and to whatever is arising in that moment so you use the breath as the anchor and so the concept is really simple but then in in practice (laughs) it's actually really difficult it's one of the hardest things to do and you know, because we're so caught up in our conditioned states and, yeah. and have such busy minds, and so. And and how does mindfulness differ from sort of other relaxation techniques and that sort of thing? Well, that's a it's a good question, and it's one that that comes up a bit. It's mindfulness is is quite different in the sense that a relaxation exercise is more of a distraction and more of a you know you you do some breathing exercises to. To relax and what happens when you meditate although it it can be relaxing it's actually really stimulating as well so meditating is, is stimulating yeah and, and 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 can when you when you sit down although it's it's often presented as you know you see people meditating yeah. on a beach or up on top of a mountain <laughs> and looking completely zen and anyone who has meditated knows that's really not what it is it's it's really quite difficult and you sit there and, and all sorts of things start to pop up yeah, and you're yeah, thinking yeah. about what yeah. you can have for lunch and, and <laughs> yeah. do I need a haircut and, and just all sorts there. of yeah. Yeah, random, just trivial, useless, yeah. often negative stuff. And, um, <clears throat> and all it is is just is noti- and noticing those thoughts and, and that noticing, that's, that's the key moment. And that, what's interesting is that's where most people think that they've failed. They think, oh, I can't meditate because I can't clear my mind and... All it is is just when you notice that, you just come back to your breath. Right. And every time you notice that your mind's wandered and come back to your breath, that's, I guess, what you could think of as, as a bicep curl for the brain. And it's <laughs> Nice where, metaphor. Mm-hmm. Nice. It's a good metaphor because, you know, a bicep curl, curl is focusing specifically on one yeah. muscle group and, yeah. and mindfulness focuses specifically on those brain regions that are involved with... Uh, attention and and also decision making and self regulation and 
and there's some really interesting research using neuroimaging to to show the effects of meditation on the brain and and they show um <clears throat> and this is sort of a, a bit beyond my field but um most of the changes are in the in the prefrontal cortex and and they show like a, a real activation of this area which i guess differs from a relaxation exercise where things are quietened down just generally quietened down Gen- so the prefrontal cortex is that part of your brain to the decision making planning organization executive executive, executive function. part of your brain yeah. which is kind of the, the the modern part of the brain yeah. one would what evolutionary people say so you can specifically turn that part down through mindfulness or through meditation as well yeah so i mean is this old wine in new bottles another metaphor for it is it kind of like stuff that has been practiced you know by i don't know i guess is it kind of like a zen practice or an eastern practice and now we're appropriating it in the west or is it different to that yeah well it's it is (laughs) more or less in in short and it's most mindfulness is most commonly attributed to buddhism and and often considered buddhism for expert for export and, and I guess that's kind of what we do in the West. We take things from other cultures, other cultures and, and say, hey, we, look and what we discovered. And we yeah. strip them of their sort of spiritual or cultural significance yeah. and we find the bit that works and then we package it up and we put a price tag on it and, <laughs> and sell it however we can. And yeah, well, you know, the idea, the idea of attention and, and paying attention to understanding yourself is, is not a new concept. It's been yeah. around all major wisdom traditions talk about that that concept both east and west yeah but see what i find interesting about mindfulness is from what i understand it's paying attention to your physical sensations in your body also your thoughts and as i understand it not fighting them just letting them float through observing them letting them float away coming up going by and just not not being antagonistic just allowing them to happen is that basically right yeah which is which is different to a lot of other type different to some types of uh say um therapies mm. where you would notice the thought and then challenge it mm. and um and yet both are effective in 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 treating certain conditions or just in in helping people feel better about the world how do you pick and choose who's going to benefit from mindfulness is it pretty much most people or I not th- everybody or i think as practicing clinicians you yeah. guys would probably have a better idea okay. than I would. <laughs> okay. so, so, so James what's your role in this what, you're a medical student what, what are you doing with mindfulness so my research is looking into a, a mindfulness based retreat for teenagers oh um, interesting it's really interesting and yeah. it's I should say that it's still uh, ongoing I'm yep. still collecting data so I can't really comment on any of the results but uh, it is it's a new area and it's uh, I guess something that I was really drawn to because of my own personal interest in mindfulness and, and meditation yeah. and we had to do it in the first couple of years of our degree and um, <clears throat> I was pretty cynical initially and thought it was all pretty wishy-washy and, and a bit of nonsense and then um, something changed and, and I came back to it and, and have sort of, I guess, meditated on and off uh, for the past few years and, yeah. and found it really beneficial and yeah. and. And just a really interesting thing to do, and, and I sat my own retreat last year, and and that was a really amazing experience. And so, when I heard about this, that was something specifically for teenagers. I thought that 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 was really that that's yeah, it's really cool. That so, what, is this an intervention, or what are we talking? It's, it's open. Uh, it's open to 
anyone. Um, and so it's a it's a it's a non-for-profit organisation in that's based in Tasmania uh, called Insight Mindfulness Education, and and they've sort of taken a model from the states and and brought it over here and. And it's open to any teenagers. They don't need to meet any criteria. Just be 15 to 19 and uh, be interested in, in, in mindfulness. a bit about mindfulness. And, and so what happens? They go on a retreat for how many days? It's five days. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> there's around five to six, around five hours of meditation each day broken right. up into 20, 30-minute slots. So oh, okay. it's a lot. Yeah. You know, it's a lot to do and um, it's pretty tough, but... <clears throat> Um, it is. It's broken up with other activities. There's some yoga and and some discussions and and the the group discussions are they're really uh, a really interesting part because that's where that's where the teens get to unpack their experience and mm. and talk about what's coming up for them and, and what's going on. And that's that sort of group environment is with the support of an experienced teacher isn't something that you get from. An app and, and, and a critical question for a bunch of fifteen to nineteen year olds on a five day retreat: <laughs> Are they allowed their phones? No, and that causes wow, man, a bit of friction. <laughs> Are they confiscated the at the door? Not confiscated. They're supported. They're supported to not use their phone, and and if and if it's going to cause real distress, then then they try to to work with and that. Just and, just briefly, how many kids have you had through the retreat already? Can you talk about that or not? Yeah, there were the first one was in January and, yeah. and there were fourteen. Okay, um, nice which number. Was small, but it was nice number. Meant that it was really yeah. intimate. Yeah, and, and there is there's another one in July which uh, is still open. And very quickly, how do people get in contact with you if they want to? Uh, they can they can look up Insight Mindfulness Education on either Google or or Facebook or the website is www.ime.org. Thank you so much, Jimmy. Very, very interesting study. See, I'm feeling calm already just talking. Did you? I love the whole mindfulness concept. Anyway, you have been listening to Radio Therapy here on Triple R. Dr. Nick, Dr. Mel and uh, Jimmy Ingram talking with you. Thanks. We are waiting. You're welcome. We are waiting for... This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.